Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Steve Jorgensen, this is J. Douglas Barker, and today on Ex Libris On Air, we'll be visiting with author Bobby Cald to discuss her latest venture into science fiction writing, The Enemies Become Friends. Welcome, Bobby. Hi. I understand this is uh, not the first in the series. You have a couple more books already written in this same fiction. Um, yes, this is the third book in the series. And this is a fictional writing, correct? Yes, it's a fiction for, uh, that takes place in outer space. Outer space and the 350 pages. So lots yeah. of excitement and adventure in this. Yeah. It's a, I try to keep it moving. There's quite a few characters in it and so it allows it uh, to, to move from place to place. And we're visiting with Bobby Cald. Now, you have written more than one book. Um, yes, this is the third one. Third in a series. Um, yes, they're all related. It's actually... Uh, as if you're still reading the same book because I don't leave any spaces between the books. I see. Now, some of your friends have described you as a very creative individual. You've got a background in theater and creative writing. Um, yes, I do. Why did you write this book? What's the backstory on it? Um, well, I had written a story in high school, and I um, had always been wanting to write more. And this girl at work was writing a book, so I just started writing, and... Um, I guess it was because I got a laptop and it was easier. And so it just kind of mushroomed into another book. The uh, the main character, um, the female character, is reading the short story at one point in the first book. And your process of writing this, is it one that you start off doing notes in longhand and then transfer into a computer, or how do you go about writing? Um, I just write on a laptop. At one point I wrote some um, longhand on on the road, and that was seemed like it uh, turned into much shorter pages than I had in longhand. So I just write on the uh, computer and keep track of the number of words that I have. I don't really outline. It's more character-driven because uh, it's more interesting for me, and it helps to keep me from getting writer's block. So that's just how I do it. And this is a fiction based in outer space. Yes, it is. Who's your main character? Um, well, I named her after my granddaughter. Her name's Sydney. And is she part of an exploration team, or what is her function in this? Well, she she and a group of uh, friends have a, a, a shipyard in which they create ships, and um, smaller ships, not the frigates. And um, she got mad at her boyfriend and took off and got uh, marooned in space. And that's just sort of where the first book starts. And you say the first book, that's... Not this book, but the first one, and That's it leads this to this book. one. This book sort of starts um, where everybody discovers that there is um, a dangerous anomaly in space that's um, threatening to suck in all of the space debris and planets, etc., in the area. So they start rescuing the people and um, prepare for an evacuation. In these 350 pages, uh, what themes uh-huh. of your book do you believe are relevant to today's current topics in our society? Um well, you know, being in outer space is uh, on everybody's mind, and 
there's a lot of uh, dangers in outer space, and so um, I'm trying to keep the people um, kind of realistic in that they're aware of their dangers and and uh, how they try to keep from um, getting consumed by the dangers. Your book's not really based on your own life, but I understand you've chosen names that are reflective of some of your friends and relatives. Um, yes, I, I have. Um, I've actually named a lot of the characters after my cousin's children and children of people that I've met. And I'm working on the fifth book right now, and um, I've named a couple of characters after some twins that I met um, on one of my trips. Absolutely. Well, that, uh, that's actually a very good technique for bringing people in and causing them to find an interest in what you've written. Uh, your book, how is it different from others in the marketplace? Um, well, I tell a lot of people now when I am um, trying to uh, sell a book is, is that there's no vampires and undead in my books. It's about people in outer space and things that could really happen to people. It's relationship-driven. Yes, relationship-driven. How would you introduce this book? If you were to meet me on the street and not know me and I introduce yourself as a, as a writer, what would you say to get my attention and perhaps cause me to want to buy the book? That This book is about um, what could happen to you if you were in outer space and um, friends that you might acquire while you're in outer space and what people say and do to, to people or... Um, how they feel when somebody talks bad to them and stuff like that. Is there a particular scene, if you were doing this as a movie production, is there a particular scene in the process of writing this book that really you think stands out and captures the essence of the book? In this book, uh, this is the one where the people that have been um, stealing everybody blind and killing people have decided to offer their assistance, and so the good side merges with the bad side in this book. Yeah. A lot of science fiction books and writers out there, what sets your book apart from the crowd? Well, I would just have to say that it's based on reality, and I think nowadays everybody's into these reality shows, and um, if a movie was made or a TV program on this book, it would make you feel like you were really there and it's something that could really be happening. Is is that because it's character-driven? Yeah, I think so. So relationships are really part of the core value of what you've written. Right, and consequences. You know, if uh, people make a decision, then they might run into a planet or an asteroid or something like that, and um, you really have to um, be looking out for yourself and uh, pay attention because if you don't then um, the universe is going to get you basically. And the question that you created here, uh, what happens if the sun goes nova? How would that affect us? I actually in the the, the fourth book that is about to be um, published uh, they, they get back to earth and the sun is about to go earth. Uh, supernova. It's actually um, grown enough that it's um, absorbed mercury, so the Earth is um, the second star to the Earth's planet to the star, and um, it's really a lot hotter, and and um, so only one ship can go in that close to it because um, it has to be able to land on a planet. If it's made for outer space, they don't have the kind of insulation on the ships, you know, um, that the uh, heat screens. Shields you know, are non-existent. Shields, that's yes. quite the word out. <laughs> now, your book, would you describe it as character-driven or realistic? Yes. Or how would you... Yes, it, it's, uh, my books are character-driven. Um, it's when a 
uh, character says or does something, then um, the book just flows from there. Um, I don't outline at all. And so um, at one point, um, I don't even know what's going to happen in the next chapter till hmm. I get there. Do you describe the in the settings the environment that these characters are in? Do you describe those in any detail? I would have to say I'm a little bit vague, but it's my feeling that when you're in outer space, there's really not a lot around you until all of a sudden there is something like an asteroid or something. You know, there there are space bodies out there like rogue planets and stuff like that, and that's actually, I've used that in the fourth and fifth books. And their transportation, is that described in any unique way? Try to make um, the ships a little bit different. Um, the ships that are made at the shipyard... Um, Tasted, who is the uh, Sydney's um, soon-to-be spouse, um, he is an artist and he paints murals in in the hallways, but not on the bridge, so it's not distracting. So, yeah, um, I do describe them. And then the uh, bad guys usually they, they don't even care what's going on on their ship. They're pretty messy. Messy as in dangerous, or messy as in. Not too neat. Well, there's not too neat. You know, they they just put whatever color on the wall to cover up um, a hole or something that they might need. And there is uh, one ship, the Quicksilver, that um, shouldn't even be in space. It's um, just like literally falling apart around them. And there's a lot of dust and debris, and they almost uh, suffocate because uh, the air filters go bad and stuff. So it basically failed a safety inspection is what it sounds like. Basically, yes. It shouldn't have been taken off planet. What's the most challenging part you have about writing books like this? It sounds like you have a, a prolific imagination, which is certainly a key to being a great author. Tell me about it. What was the most challenging part about writing this book? This book, well, trying to get it going. It's, it's uh, you know, every time I finish a book, I think, well, I'm not going to be able to go any further with this story. And then trying to make the story grow um, and figure out um, how to further it. And the very fact that I come up with 350 pages is a shock to me sometimes. That's a, that's an accomplishment just in itself. I to be able to make the story <laughs> long enough to make another book, you know. I noticed also on your cover that there's someone with the same last name that illustrated this. Um, close relative, perhaps? Yeah, that's my oldest son. His name's Eric called, and um, he did the illustration for me on the computer. It was a time frame issue, so I did the, the illustrations on the first two books. He's actually done the illustration for the fourth book as well. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think is important about telling folks about your book? No, I, I think they're pretty interesting. Um, I think that people get a little put off by the titles on the books, but I use the titles on the books and the titles on the chapters to kind of draw that reader into the book so that they sort of get an idea of what's going to be happening. So like in this book, Enemies Become Friends, it's pretty pretty um, explanatory, you know, that that's what's going to be happening in this book. We've been visiting with Bobby Cald, the author of The Enemies Become Friends. Thank you, Bobby, for visiting with us today. Where can we get your book? Um, well, my books are available online in all forms. They're hardback, trade paperback, and ebooks. And as far as I know, they're available on all the ebook sites. Um, you can find, if you just uh, type in somebody's uh, the author's name, Bobby Cald, um, it'll give you innumerable sites to choose from. And Bobby is spelled B-O-B-B-I-E. Yes, it is. And Cald is spelled K-A-A-L-D. Yes, that's correct.
different. Do you have a personal website? Um, yes, I do. It's the same, um, just bobbycall.com. We'll pass that along to our listeners, and I encourage you to copy of Bobby's book. Sounds like an interesting and fun read. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management. The Holistic Approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness. How emotions are directly related to physical illness and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live, every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature, and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings. For Steve Jorgensen, this is J. Douglas Barker. Today on Ex Libris On Air, we'll be visiting with Fred Gertner to discuss his book, Preacher Sean, Anti-Terrorist. What an interesting title. Welcome, Mr. Gertner. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. In reading the cover of your book, I get the impression that you and your spouse have a very interesting life. It says that it says that in addition to being a writer, you and your wife are composers and music dramatists. Yes, that's true. And the interesting thing about it is, no matter how old you you get, you don't wear that out. It's like something that continues to grow, no matter how many years. Are your music endeavors a personal hobby, or are they more? Do you perform, say, publicly? No, this is personal. Personal. And we uh, we collaborate. It's almost like it's, instead of having physical children, these books and music dramas drama, dramas are our children. So the one I'm working on right now of all things is called Beethoven, Then and Now. That's the third novel. I'm so wrapped up in it, I just can't put it down. But uh, <clears throat> the two that preceded it each involve some terrible thing that bring the way in to intercede. For example, in the first book, it was the idea of the uh, slavery 
of one group by another here in America. Mm-hmm. Well, Aaron the Way Show has something to say about that. And the second novel, the one we're reviewing right now, Preacher Sean, it's a terrible situation in Ireland where we have Christians killing other Christians in the name of Christ, yes. the old Catholic-Protestant uh, you know, conflict. So that's about where we stand. Your novel, Preacher Sean, Anti-Terrorist, is it based on fact or is it based on, on fiction only? It's factual. Now, the appearance of the Wayshower, as he appears and how, as we express his concern, of course, that's part of the friction. That's my, that's my job as an author. But, the fa- but what he's basing it upon is certainly factual. I mean, the, the Christians killing other Christians in the name of Christ, that, that's, uh, that's a fact, sad to relate. Certainly based on fact. Well, how did you come to write this book? What motivated you to, to write this particular novel? Well, just like in trying to write the first one, I wanted to pick out some conflict uh, that would attract a wayshower, our wayshower, Aaron, to the situation. And a whole group of blacks, whites enslaving a bunch of blacks, that was bad enough to attract him. So that was the reason, that was the motivation in the first book. Then for the second book, I wanted to find some other terrible deed that would attract him. And I couldn't think of anything worse than in Ireland, where we have Christians killing other Christians in the name of Christ. So that was that's the main conflict that is featured in the book, and how Aaron uh, visits the situation because of that conflict, and what he recommends, and uh, what their plan is to involve two groups to interact with each other as a big step toward... Uh, overcoming the uh, conflict. How are the controversial aspects of your book? Is there a message in there that might be viewed as controversial by someone that's reading it? I don't believe. I mean, no matter who they are, they would know that any steps that can be taken to keep Christians from killing other Christians just because of Catholic and Protestant differences. And uh, a step to remedy that and to show that they have much more in common just as they call themselves Irish Christians instead of Irish Catholics or Irish Protestants. They're Irish Christians who look at themselves that way, and there's nothing to to be disturbed about, much less kill over. So that's the uh, that's the main conflict, and what what attracted me to want to write about it. And I think it was serious enough to to attract to attract uh, Alan Oweshore, because he's supposed to show up in every book that I write, as he has so far. So he's your main character. Mm-hmm. He's my speaker, and he's the one, incidentally, he has a very important role to play in the current Beethoven book that I'm, I'm working on. This is an interesting concept. Who do you think this book would appeal to, and why would they want to read it? Well, I think anyone that ever has a question, some of the buddies that I go and have coffees with, they don't believe in anything. They simply say, Gertner, all this stuff about reincarnation our lives are defined in terms of their present span on Earth. When it ends, that's the end of everything. There's nothing more. And yet, they are fabulously happy. I mean, they're not, they're, they're not saying, boy, I believe in, in death ending everything. Well, if that's the case, then how can you... you just That's not a doorway to great happiness. But if you believe this is but a tiny, tiny 
uh, addition to the sequence that we're going to add to it, just as regular reincarnated beings, oh, for millions of uh, reincarnations, until we reach a certain state of affairs, then each of us will become the father, and I do mean father, not mother, the father of our own life stream. Hmm. There's an awful big universe up there, and uh, Aaron, if the father, God the father, is something he's interested in, it's getting human beings to fill out the, uh, the extent of it. And uh, that, that's, what, that's, what the, uh, that's the goal of what we're trying to do. So your philosophy involves reincarnation. Your thought is that humankind can get better and better and better, and they're reincarnated until they get it right. Perfect enough to become each one of us a way shower, which is to say the father of our own life stream. I see. So that's what, that is our goal. And it seems like such a beautiful goal to have compared to, no, 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 look out your three score and ten and then forget about it. That's the end. Hmm. Oof, I don't think I could go through a day if I believed that. Well, that would sound like a selfish endeavor. Yeah, I think so. Mr. Gertner, how would you introduce this book to someone who doesn't know you or know of your books as you're going out for coffee in your local neighborhood? How would, I work with how would you introduce a Preacher Sean Anti-Terrorist to someone? Well, would I be able to have a copy with me? Oh, absolutely. I think I would ask him to read the summary on page 5. It says everything that I could say more directly and... Then I would ask them to read a little blurb on the back cover. And finally, if they still have time, background on page 173, and then the complete synopsis on page 175. And by the time they see that, if they don't want to buy the book and go to work on it, well then, that's, I can't, I couldn't do anything more to sell the book than to make those references. Mm-hmm. And you could autograph it on the spot. What is the main thought you'd like readers to take away from this book? We're here for the sake of others. It isn't, it isn't a selfish thing, you know. Aaron the Wayshower is, is the author's spokesman, and he appears in each of the novels, including Preacher Sean. And he visits uh, Northern Ireland, Ireland on that visit simply because of the terrible relationship that's going on there where, where we have Christians killing other Christians, and they do so in the name of Christ. Well, then I think that should interest readers. They should become interested in what Alan, he's the prophet, uh, like a father to us. What will he say and what will he do? He's not just another great teacher like Moses and Jesus, Buddha and Mohammed. He's the procreator of a life stream that includes earthlings as part of it, as a tiny fraction of his total. But most important... What he is, is what each one of us will one day become. Each of us will become a father, the father of a life stream of our own. And that's quite a responsibility. How does and you pre- never run out of space. That gives you the idea of what it means to live in an infinite universe. How does Preacher Sean fit into this? Well, he's just one, one, one uh, aspect that attracts Alan the Wayshower to come and see if he can't do something to put an end to this terrible uh, conflict that's going on there. You know, Christians killing other Christians in the name of Christ, and yet uh, think how much more they have in common than these subtle differences. 
Is there a scene or a specific occurrence that stands out to you as the author? Well, I think on page, what is it, 61, someplace in there, there's actually a sketch of the universe of which we're part. Yeah, on page 61. And I think anyone, any reader that opens up there and just looks at it a little bit, there's a description of the first, second order universe and our place within it. And then that whole first, second order universe is just a tiny speck that fits into the second, third order universe, uh, either, and then rebirth beyond that, uh, life, depending on how it was lived, how positive it was. You get reborn in third order minor, minor universe or the third order major. And then that constant scheme of death and rebirth informs you of how you've done because you see whether you end up in the minor order or the major order. Major order, you're pretty good. That means you're pretty assured of getting reborn into the third order, either major or minor. But if you get born in the third, in the third order, uh, minor, then you can't be too sure of where you'll be in the fourth order. And that kind of scares you a bit into some good, serious, hard work. Mm-hmm. Because life is a beautiful continuity. And if you, if you say, oh, the hell, well, I'm not interested in anything. Well, you still, your spiritual sub-electron, which is your soul, it doesn't perish. It just goes back and starts all over again. And everything that you've done so far is simply erased from it. So you'll have no recall of any of those deeds and thoughts and interests and plans. So it, it's kind of self-evaluating as you go through it. Hmm, interesting. Now, themes in your book, there's a lot of conflict in society today along with current news topics and the world and life in general sometimes gets complex. Are there any themes in your book that you think might be relevant to the reader? See, throughout the, our boundless cosmos, humanity manifests by way of an infinite number of life streams, each literally fathered by, our, by its own wayshower. And the mature streams occupy, think, the millions of higher-order universes. It's a big universe up there of which we're a tiny part. The stream to which we belong is a mere child because our wayshower, Alan, uh, has seeded only through the 81st higher order. He's working on the 82nd right now. And these go on to the millions, you see. So, you're, so our you're... very own co-creator is known as Alan the Prophet, and the first order of this stream occupies 343 planetary cultures scattered among 27 different galaxies within our first order universe. Interesting. And the sketch on page 61 shows that very clearly. Although Earth thinks are but a tiny fraction of his first order progeny, he loves all his children, and he suffers greatly when any of them misbehave. And misbehavior certainly is Christians killing other Christians yes. because of this difference. Well, your book is attempting to, I guess, ask the question why we're here and what's it all about and where we're going. Is that a correct evaluation? It, yes, I'd say it is. And uh, if you read it, it sure gives you an idea of it. And you, then, unlike my buddies at King's, I'd drink coffee with, they say, oh, Fred, there's no, you're here now, enjoy these three score and ten, and that's it, there's nothing else. Ooh, if I believed that, I don't think I'd get up the next morning. But I've so believed in this infinite continuity of which we're only at the very beginning as, as something beautiful to look forward to.
Yes. And each time we're reborn, we've we finished about a thousand years of the life stream before adding up. Now, the first ten rebirths are a little bit different. They become increased in size and extent. The second order takes about 2,000 years, the fifth order 5,000, and finally the tenth order 10,000 years just to complete it. But from the eleventh order on, they're all approximately 1,000 years. And it builds and builds and builds, and that, that, that's what we're here for. And as we grow, why? Because each of us someday will find our own uh, life system. We'll be like Aaron the prophet. We'll father a life stream and have that responsibility. So you don't need to be sitting around and saying, oh, me, what, what am I here for? I'm here to drink a little bit of coffee, to live for three store and ten, and then it's all over. Mm. <laughs> well, what was the most challenging part of writing this book? The most challenging part? I guess it's trying to keep things, to look at both sides of this Christian killing Christians and try to see it from the Catholic point of view and the Protestant point of view, because each each certainly felt that they were on the, doing the, they were justified in doing this. And certainly along comes Aaron, and he says, let me show you. I want to I select 30 boys from the Protestant camp and 30 from the Catholic and then put them together and, and, and instruction with, a, with an educational program and let them see what they have in common and just it just kind of overcomes these tiny individuals they realize that their differences are far less important than what they have in common. A good thought. Mr. Gertner, is there anything else from the book Preacher Sean, Anti-Terrorist, that perhaps we haven't covered? See, Aaron himself was to borrow the use of Sean's physical body so that he can go around and make some observations here on Earth before he leaves. So for about 11, 11 months, he does just exactly that. And that's an interesting experience because uh, Sean is reviewing the experience, and he writes it up, and he says, boy, is this unusual. But of course, while Aaron takes over, he doesn't know anything. He has to wait till he comes back in, and then Aaron leaves the use of his physical body, and he once again becomes Sean Lauder, and his girlfriend that he loves, who is incidentally a Roman Catholic, she fills in all the details of what he has experienced uh, as, uh, as Aaron. And that, uh, as that gets filled in, we learn, we, we develop a much clearer view of Aaron the Wayshower. And you say, well, why are we interested in Aaron the Wayshower? Because in the, eventually, each one of us will have those responsibilities uh, over an entire life system. So how's that for a life goal instead of, well, I live for three score and ten and that's done. Yes. How would you describe the correct classification of your novel? Call it strictly a novel? Would you call it a fantasy novel? Would you call it philosophical? I think in a sense it's a philosophical novel, but it is a novel. It's presenting an idea which, if you care to embrace, it will change your way of looking at things. And in my opinion, the author's opinion, changes for the better. Because and you really will have a whole stream of things uh, egging you on to do the very best you can for the full extent of your present uh, your present life. 
And there are more in the series. Oh, yeah, I'm working on Beethoven right now, novel. Mr. Gertner, thank you for spending some time with us today. We've been visiting with author Fred Gertner to discuss his book, Preacher Sean, Anti-Terrorists. Mr. Gertner, thank you for visiting with us today. Where can we get a copy of your book? I guess at any Vibris uh, outlet, it's easy to do. It can be ordered by phone. It can be ordered in a hardback edition or the uh, soft cover. To order additional copies, it's simply Vibris, and it gives the right on page uh, four of the novel. It gives the exact address and phone number where you could phone and order it. Once again, the book is titled Preacher Sean, Anti-Terrorist. For Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. For Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker, and today we'll be visiting with Christina Corbett to discuss her book, Enter His Gates. Good morning, Christina. Good morning. In reviewing the information about your book, I see you've written over 584 pages. What was the story behind writing this book? Well, it's, it's for encouragement for people because... Everybody struggles, everybody goes through trials, and this was to focus on that. In your writing, were you focusing on the trials or a solution to the trials? Well, it's focusing on maybe part of the results of the trial, the reason for the trials, because there are two different um, storms we face in life. One is a storm of correction where the Lord's disciplining us. The second is a storm of perfection where the Lord is trying 
he's working on us. Sometimes we don't understand why we struggle. I understand you had some physical challenges uh, may have led to the writing of this book. Would that be accurate? Yes. Um, about two and a half years ago, three years ago, um, I was um, diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, and it came on me pretty pretty quick to the point where within a few months, I, I couldn't even walk. It mm. was just I, I couldn't stand. Um, I had a hard time even getting, you know, to the bathroom. It was just, I just really, really had a hard time, and it hurt, and I was miserable, and um, I couldn't work. I, um, I worked at a daycare at that time, and it got to, well, I couldn't lift babies. I couldn't stand. I couldn't lift them, and so needless to say, I couldn't work. Have your conditions improved at this point physically? It has. Um, I'm not at a hundred percent. I still, um, I still struggle in walking. Um, I can't walk very long. I can't stand very long. I have to watch what I do. I don't have the strength that I used to. To write a 584-page book must have taken some grit and determination. Well, yeah. When the Lord wants something done, He's going to, <laughs> He's going to make sure it gets done. Take time to give our listeners a synopsis of the book. What is the underlying theme? How. Sometimes we struggle, and we don't understand why. Because when I when I when I was diagnosed, I couldn't understand why this was happening. Because I was active in church, I was teaching two classes. I had a Sunday school um, class on Sunday and Wednesday. Plus, I visited, I delivered meals, I sent cards. You know, I was very active, and um, so when all this happened. You know, I questioned what was going on. I was doing my part is what I felt like. Well, some people feel that, and I don't mean to interpret your lifestyle, but some people interpret busyness and work for the gospel and for the Lord as the key to success in their personal life and, and in their health. Not always the case, is it? No. Well, no, because we sometimes we look at it wrong. Sometimes we think when bad happens, God's punishing us. And right. that's not the case, and that wasn't the case here with me. It wasn't that God was punishing me. He was getting me ready, because if, if he hadn't stopped me the way he did, this book would have never been written. Never. And we can't buy the grace and blessings of God either through our efforts and through our work. Oh, no, no, because I, I, I thought I was doing my part, but, you know, the Lord, he's got, he's got um, tasks for each of us, and it may change. And he decided to take me down a different route, and this is the way he brought me. I understand there's 365 or so different... It's a 365-day devotional. Devotional. It is a devotional guide specifically. Now, are these... I have not read the devotionals and have not read any of the excerpts. I've uh, just perceived that there are 365 of them, and they were daily devotions. Are they personal reflections? Are they scriptural in nature? How did you approach those? Some of them are. Um, some of them talk about, you know... Because see, when, when I was diagnosed with a... Sorry, I, I couldn't work. I was homebound, and I really struggled with that. And finally, you know, and there was nobody around, nobody around. My preacher and his wife, they came to visit, but that was it. Nobody else came around. I just had my husband and my mom, mm -hmm. and that was it. 
And so not only was I hurt physically, I was hurt emotionally and spiritually as well. And um, the Lord, he just, he kind of spoke to me about doing um, encouraging word. And that's how this, um, the daily devotional came up, was I felt like that's what the Lord was working on. He was wanting me to hurt so that I could understand when somebody else hurt. He wanted me to feel alienated and without encouragement so that I would better understand and sympathize with someone who was alienated and felt there was no courage. When you feel, yes, go ahead. Me in a place to be able to deal with others. When you're isolated like that, you have to turn to somebody or something for strength, and you turn to your faith. Yes, and and I think that's um, a lot of what the Lord was trying to do. He, He was trying to get me to the point, not only to write this book and to do this ministry, but to also make sure I wasn't dependent on anybody but Him. Are there themes in your book that are relevant to current news topics, society and the world, and life in general? Well, there's a lot, there's a lot of there's a lot of things um, happening out in the world. Describe how you think your book addresses those issues. I think that it reassures of hope. There's hope. You know, it, there's never a point where the hope is gone. You know, even when it doesn't feel like God is in control, He is. It's just looking to Him. And I think a lot of people, they don't look to him, and that's why we get in the shape that we do. And then we lose hope. And God wants us to know there is hope, and there is forgiveness, there is redemption, that we're not a lost cause, and we're never too far away from him that he can't save us. Your book, how is it different from others in the marketplace? There are other devotional guides out there. Some of them are not quite as lengthy as yours. How does yours differ? <laughs> Mine is not about religion. So many people think salvation is about religion, but it's not. Salvation is about a relationship with Jesus. That's it. You know, we can't earn it. We can't do anything to get it. Once we have it, we can't lose it. And it's it's not about what we can do, what we can offer, because the truth is we couldn't offer anything. That's how we needed salvation, because we messed it up and we couldn't save ourselves. So this book is not about religion, about um, Baptists or Methodists. It's about a relationship. Yeah, that's what rescues us, is that relationship. The title of the book, Enter His Gates. What was the purpose behind that title? Well, there is a psalm in the, in the Bible, and they've made a little praise song to go with it, and it says, Enter His Gates with Thanksgiving, Enter His Courts with Praise. And sometimes before we can get to where we need to be, sometimes we need to be focused on the Lord first, and we need to be thankful for Him, and we need to come into His presence. Because once we come into His presence, that's when things are going to change. Attitudes, situations, we're going to change. We can't help but change once we enter His gates into His presence. There has to be a change. Now, your audience for this book... Is this intended for church-going folks totally, or do you think others might also gravitate toward it? I think others might gravitate toward it. When I first started doing it, I thought it was just to Christian, you know, just encouraging our brothers and sisters. But as I was doing it, there were some in there that weren't necessarily just for the saved, but it was reaching out to the unsaved 
as well. So in addition to being an inspirational devotional book, you also could call it a motivational book. Yeah, I think it would be. Motivational to the church folks, but also to others. Right. It's to encourage, you know, those who are already saved, you know, God's got a purpose for all of us. There's hope and there's salvation and there's redemption. How was it possible to write 584 pages? How long did that take? And what was your motivation behind that? Was it easy to write the book? You know, he put it upon my heart to do the daily devotions. I started sending them out to a few people at church. Well, then it spread, they forwarded, and then they forwarded, and then they forwarded. We've had a couple that had been read in church. And when I started doing that, it, it, was, it was difficult because there, was, there were so many days that I didn't want to do it. I, I, I just didn't feel like it. You know, it's hard to encourage someone else when you need the encouragement. Yes. And so there were so many days I just did not want to do it. And I looked for reasons not to, but I made myself do it. I had to push myself to do it because I felt like this was what the Lord was calling me to do. And the thing is, is when I, I, were, I was doing these verses, Lord wasn't just speaking to other people. He was also speaking to me. Did you write a devotional every day, or was it over a period of time that this book developed? I started out, the verses I did on, um, on the Internet that I sent out to ministry, it was, it was just Monday through Friday. But a couple people had mentioned about putting it into book form. So it, it took me about a year and a half, maybe two years, to put it all together because I had to make up for those weekends that I hadn't been doing them for. I see. So you were kind of taking a vacation from writing during those times. Yes, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazing concept to sit down and write a devotional that is as lengthy as yours was. Your individual daily devotions are not just a, a short paragraph or two. They actually extend a page or two, don't they? They do. Sometimes it's a story form, that the message is just a story, and it's a story the Lord put on my heart. And sometimes that's the whole devotion, the point behind that, the story, the meaning of the story. That's what the point is. And sometimes, you know, Lord just has me expand upon a verse and explain it more in detail and in depth. There are a lot of stories in there. When I've read them, you know, I stand back and I told my husband, I said, you know, it is just amazing that I did that. I mean, I know I did it through the Spirit. You know, the Lord was... It was his inspiration, because I'm not a writer. I never have been. And it was just amazing to sit back and read some of these and think, I, I helped do that. As a new writer, how would you introduce this to someone that doesn't know you as a writer, as an author, and let them know what the content of this book is all about? I would say, you know, with all the storms that we face in life, and we all do, I don't think there's a single person in this world that doesn't encounter some type of storm at some point. But the thing is, just like the disciples on the um, sea, Jesus is going to come to us, you know, and sometimes he's going to come and he's going to calm that storm on the sea. But sometimes he's going to calm that storm in our hearts first. And that's, and I think that's what this book is about. He's saying, enter my gates and let me take care of you. Excellent inspiration. Now, we've been visiting with Christina Corbett, discussing her book, her devotional book, Enter His Gates. 
Thank you, Christina, for visiting with us today. Where can we get your book? Well, you can get it at Barnes & Noble and um, Amazon.com. Yes. I have a website that's um, com. Christina, give us the correct spelling of your last name. How is Corbett spelled? C-O-R-B-I-T-T. Thank you for sharing this important book and subject material for our audience today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. For Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.